We've been looking at the subject of Christ's preeminence. Our theme for the year is what's on the screen behind me, Christ at the center. And this has been something that uh, flows right out of our four mission statements, exalt Christ, advance the church, nurture families, engage the world. It all starts with exalting Christ, making sure that he is preeminent in our life. And again, Colossians 1.18 has been our theme verse, uh, which says, and he is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. We've been breaking down this theme on Wednesday nights, uh, verse by verse through Colossians. Pastor CJ has been doing a great job with that. And then on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at a, a bit of a more topically, uh, uh, a topical fashion as we've looked at Christ's preeminence in various facets of our life. And most recently, we've been looking at Christ at the center of our worldview. Last week, I didn't preach. My brother Matthew was here, preached two powerful messages, one on faith and one on prayer. Uh, but the week before that, we looked at uh, the matter of worldview. And as we look at our world, wor the worldview of our world is changing rapidly. And many Christians are being sucked into various narratives that are not biblical because we have no moorings, because we don't really know what the Word of God says. We're not letting it shape our thinking. So we want to look at Christ at the center of our worldview. And uh, Lord willing, I plan to come back to this one more time uh, next week as well. Uh, and, and hopefully wrap this sub-series up. Everyone has a worldview. And many Christians today, unfortunately, have adopted the secular worldview and ideology uh, without being able to articulate the biblical one. We want to make sure that we're not uh, guilty of being blown here and there with every wind of doctrine. What's a worldview? A worldview is a particular philosophy of life or a perception of the world. Everybody has this, and this is how we see life. And it is interesting how two people can look at the same stuff and see two different things uh, because of their worldview. The Bible does help us with our worldview. We went through several passages last week. I don't have time to look at them all right now, but we'll skip to a couple of them. Colossians 2, we've been there a lot recently, Colossians 2, 6, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. Folks, we wouldn't have that warning in the scriptures if it wasn't a real reality. There are those who are spoiling and deceiving and leading people after a philosophy that is not that that is from Christ. First Peter told us to gird up the loins of our mind. We need to do that and hope to the end for grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be holy for I am holy. 
I'm reading through the Bible. I try to read through the Bible every year. I know some of you do that as well. I highly recommend it. And it never gets old. And I always learn something new. I'm reading through Judges right now. Judges is an interesting book. There's some weird stuff in Judges. But there's some really uh, gut-riching stuff in Judges. You know, in Judges, they had a hard time passing on their worldview to their kids and their grandkids. They had a hard time taking their biblical ideology and transmitting that to the next generation. And God was merciful with them, and he would send them judges to get them out of the trouble that they had sold themselves into. Over and over and over, God delivered them. I also noticed something that I hadn't really noticed before. Uh, It says at the very beginning of Judges, it says that the people, uh, that God left some of the, the inhabitants of the land purposely for them, left them behind so that the generations to come would learn to do war. So they wouldn't be soft. So they'd have to figure some things out. They'd have to fight their own battles. You know, sometimes I think we try to win all the battles for our kids and just give our kids like that which we never got, this perfect life, and, and we, we, we shelter them from everything. And actually, we need to take them forward with us into the fray. We need to teach our kids how to fight. We need to teach our kids how to think these things through. We need to talk about difficult subjects. Some parents are like, oh, shh, 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 don't talk about that at the table. Well, you have a question? Uh, let's not talk about that. No, let's talk about these things. You have questions. We have Bible answers. We need to be engaging our, our young people. You know, what did it say? We just read it as in Colossians, as ye have been taught. Well, that's assuming you've been taught. Let's make sure we're doing that. As we look at the matter of worldview, I think of the judges, I think of so many people, but I think of Lot, and that's where we're going to be this morning. We're in Genesis 13 to begin. We're going to look at Lot and ask some questions from his life. Why was he not able to transfer what he believed to his kids? Why was he not able to impact his community? Think about it. Think about your community. How would you like it to be said, you lived and died on such and such a street and couldn't convert one? At the end of the day, your neighborhood gets nuked from heaven. And that's what happened to Sodom. He could not get the gospel. He could not get his ideology, his worldview out where the people were. He could not impact anyone. He could not impact his family. He could not impact anyone. We don't have time to read the whole passage, so I'm going to skip through some of this. So guys, uh, try to do the best you can to, to follow along. But uh, Genesis 13, 5 says, A lot also which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. Lot was the tag-along to Abraham, his uncle. And if you're reading through Genesis, you've already seen Lot's name before you get to Genesis 13. 
Uh, basically, when it says, and Abraham went here, and Lot tagged along, and Abraham went there, and Lot tagged along, uh, he's just a tag along, and then finally in chapter 13, he comes more to the forefront, and then in 19, he's definitely at the forefront of the story, but he was a man who was raised with the right ideology, the right theology, the right worldview, and he learned from Abraham, a man that the Bible says was a great man of faith. He went out by faith, not knowing where he, where he went, but knowing who he was following. Lot learned from the best, but it all stopped with him. I wonder, would that be said of us? Boy, he, he learned from him, he learned from her, and he learned from these great people, but boy, it went nowhere. It was a dead end when it got to that individual. So his herdmen strove with Lot's herdmen. The land was too narrow for them. They're fighting, and, and Abraham says, we got to spread out. You take one area, I'll take the other. I don't want to be fighting with my kin. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord. This was like Eden. That's what it was like. Like the land of Egypt, as the comes to Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now, wait a minute. I thought he liked the plain. I thought he liked the beauty. I thought he wanted all this stuff. What does he need with this wicked city? Verse 13 says, The men of Sodom were wicked, and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So how would you pitch your tent, face your tent toward this exceedingly wicked city? There was something about it that allured him. Sin has quite an allure. You know, when you, when you uh, look at a commercial and they, they show you the Miller High Life, they never show you the Miller Low Life, Right? My friend and I, we had to go pick up my trailer, and the closest, the, the most direct route was to go straight through Las Vegas, and we were driving at night. I'll tell you what, Las Vegas at night is lit up. There are all sorts of lights flashing and things that are trying to lure you in to the various establishments. Uh, you know, Sodom, I'm sure, had a lot of allure. That's not why he chose it originally. He chose it for the lush, fruitful, fertile fields. But here's this city, and he's already beginning to go the wrong direction. Genesis 19. Genesis 19. <clears throat> of course, we fast forward. God has decided to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and to destroy it. Abraham knows that Lot, his nephew, is there. And his, son, and his sons and daughters and in-laws and, and whoever else is there. And, and Abraham intercedes and says, will you not spare it if you find five? And they say, we won't. Oh, I'm sorry, will you not destroy it if you find five? They say, we won't destroy it if we find five righteous. How tragic that they couldn't find five. Now we do know the Bible says that Lot was a righteous man. The Bible says that multiple times. In the New Testament, uh, the Bible says that Lot was a righteous man and he vexed his righteous soul. Tells me that he was a God-fearer. We would say today, in today's terminology, we'd call him a Christian. 
but he was vexing his righteous soul. And he put his family in a dangerous place, and he ultimately lost them. In verse 1, it says, There came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. That means he was in the business now, maybe even the politics of the city. If you sat in the gate, you were one of the city officials. So he is not just uh, uh, pitching his tent toward Sodom. He has moved there. He talks later about his house that's in the city. He is working in the gate. So these, these two angels come, Lot sitting in the gate with the, the, the highfalutin people of the city. And Lot, seeing them, arose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go your ways. Why do you think he sought them out so earnestly? He knew these men had something special about them. They had a countenance about them, a glow about them that was, it was different. They were angels. And he knew what the men of the city did to people who lodged in the street. And he jumps in here to, to help. They say, nay, we'll abide in the street all night. He pressed upon them greatly. And they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread and they did eat but before they lay down the men of the city even the men of Sodom compassed the house round about both old and young all the people from every quarter and they said unto Lot and said unto him where are the men which came in to thee this night bring them out to us that we may know them that word know that's to know in a sexual manner they wanted to sexually abuse them This is part of the wickedness that God spoke of in verse 13 of chapter 13. They were wicked sinners exceedingly. And Lot went out at the door unto unto them and shut the door after them and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Do you ever wonder why they didn't do anything to him? I'll tell you why. Abraham saved all their lives a few chapters ago. There was a big war. Abraham and Lot swooped in and won the day. And all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah owed Abraham and Lot their lives. They weren't going to touch him. So he was a stranger that did not get abused. He was welcomed, sat in the gate, got his own house. But now he's pushing it with them and he's making them mad. And things begin to change. Don't do so wickedly. Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known man. He has two virgin daughters. And look at his, how his worldview has changed in such a short time. Let me, I pray you, bring them out to you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for, there came, uh, for they came under the shadow of my roof. What's he talking about? He's talking about this Middle Eastern culture where when you have guests under your roof, you protect them with your life. So he has imbibed the culture of the day, the worldview of the day, and which also says that your, your women children are not as important as your male children, and, and they're not as important as these guests. All of this is not biblical. This is not even logical or natural, but it's cultural. He's accepted the worldview of the day. So he's making this offer, and he's probably hoping they won't take me up on it. They won't take me up on it. I hope they won't. And they said, stand back. 
This fellow came in to sojourn, and will he needs be a judge? Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? Now he's in trouble. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great. So they wearied themselves to find the door. Now let me just tell you, you're really bent on sin. When you're about to, you're you're trying to do this wicked deed and you get smitten with blindness and you're still trying to find the door? You got it bad. You got it really bad. I'm blind, Bob. I'm blind. I'm blind. I'm blind. We're all blind. Well, where's the door? Who thinks that way? I'd be thinking, I'm blind. Get me to a doctor or something or where, what happened? I don't care about the door anymore or who's behind her or what we're going to do. These guys were bent on themselves. They wearied themselves finding the door. Did the Bible say that they were wicked exceedingly? Well, they, he, the, they, they have the blindness and the men say to Lot, hast thou any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters? Whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake to his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, so evidently he's got virgin daughters, and then he's got married daughters. That's what I I get from this. I don't know how many. It just says sons-in-law that married his daughters. And uh, he said, up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. This man has lost so much of what he stands for, what he says he believes. He has so imbibed the culture around him that when he comes in to talk to his sons-in-law, they're like, that's a good joke. That's hilarious. And they can't take him seriously. If you think Lot's the only one who's, who has lost his testimony, uh, think again. He has a worldview in his head. That's Abraham's worldview. And then he has the worldview that he has been living and the confusion that has resulted has now taken his words and made them as nothing. When morning arose, the angel hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here. In other words, forget the ones over there. Lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, now check that out. While he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. If you, have a, if you mark in your Bible, mark right there, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. This man's worldview had been so deteriorated. What he believes compared to what he lives, it's all so muddled and so confused. He's so indecisive. The poor man couldn't even move himself out the door. He couldn't move his wife. He couldn't move his virgin daughters. He's lingering. Well, what would I do? And how do we do this? Okay, we got to, come on, guys, we got to go. Okay, pack up more. Okay, well, uh, 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 uh. and before you know it, a guy's got his arm. 
and he's being pulled out the door. And the, so one guy has an arm of him and his wife, and out the door they go. The other angel has the arm of this, this daughter and this daughter, and out the door they go. And the Bible says they were brought out and set out of the city. The Lord being merciful to him. I'm glad for God's mercy. What God does for me, what God does for you that we could never do for ourselves, we want to do, but we're all confused. And then he gets some instructions. And he pleads, can I go to this little city? I don't want to go into the hills. Let me go into this little city. They say, fine, go to the city. Go to Zoar. But I can't do anything until you're gone. And they say, don't turn back. Don't look back. Well, you know what happens. God destroys the cities of the plain. He, he rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 24, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities, verse 26. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. She was overwhelmed with the sulfur, whatever else was being rained down upon the land. She stayed back, she turned back, and, and she became destroyed with the rest. He couldn't deliver himself, he couldn't deliver his kids, he couldn't deliver his wife, he couldn't do anything, and he finds himself running for his life. And then he goes to Zoar and says, this isn't safe, now I'm going to go to the mountains after all. He goes to the mountains, and there, in verses 30 through 38, his daughters say, I think that the whole world must have been nuked. There's nobody left. We're going to have to become with child from our own father. And they make him drink wine. And he commits incest with his two daughters. And they bear Moab and Ammon. And if you know your Bible, you know that Moab and Ammon fought with Israel all of their days. They were the sworn enemies of Abraham's people. And I thought this whole thing started to end a strife. Isn't that where we started in Genesis 13? Your herdmen are striving with my herdmen. I don't want to fight you. You don't want to fight me. We're brothers. Let's fix this. And Lot says, let's fix this. I'll take the best, the lush, the greatest spot, and, and I'll just go there and you do whatever you want to do. And that sinful, selfish, lustful desire to just go toward what he felt was the most pleasing to him in his own flesh bred all sorts of, of consequences and ultimately the strife that they, see, they, they tried to avoid at the beginning, they've had ever since. A thousand times fold. I also want to say this, you know, when I think about a worldview, I think about my kids and I want them to have a biblical worldview. I want my grandkids, if the, if the Lord tarries, to have a biblical worldview, my great-grandkids. And I can't think, I can't even imagine my kids, grandkids, or any of my posterity, I can't imagine any of them going to hell. But there's something that Lot has helped me to wake up and see. There's actually something worse than my kids not becoming God-fearers or my, my posterity not becoming uh, uh, Christians. 
What if not only they are not Christians, but what if they become the enemies of Christians? What if your kids and mine, what if your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-great-great-grandkids are one day the ones who are putting Christians to death? Have you ever thought about that? That can happen. That happened to Lot. All of his posterity were those who gave themselves to wickedness and destroyed those who gave themselves to righteousness. How does this happen? Well, a worldview that was not imbibed was not able to be transferred. He had his core beliefs. He's called a righteous man all the way through the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament. He was a righteous man, but he could not stand. Now, we know others in the Bible have. Daniel and his three friends stood in Babylon. And they had a worldview that they did not sacrifice. And they had a worldview that we believe impacted future generations. We believe that the, the, the Magi who came in search of Jesus when they followed the star, we believe that they are fruit from Daniel's ministry. Uh, th- th- there's some longevity there. So it can happen. But what happened a lot? I believe that there was no intentionality, no devotion, no diligence. But rather, there was a subtle giving in to sin. And as you seek sin... Sin erodes faith. Sin erodes a biblical worldview. This is why Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4, 9, Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them to thy sons and thy sons' sons. Deuteronomy 6, 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up diligently. And you see him laying it out when you're sitting, when you're walking, when you're lying, when you're lying down, when you're rising up. In other words, you'd better be engaged in this matter every day, all day. Because there's no guarantee that the next generation is going to pick this up. And God will, as I said in Judges, God will leave behind some enemies so that your kids will have their chance to fight their own battles, and that's a good thing. You can't fight all the battles for your kids. You've got to let them fight their own battles. But you have got to be with them, equipping them, helping them. We must take nothing for granted. And I wonder, do you have a biblically articulate worldview? In review, we talked about A worldview seeks to answer several questions. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? What is wrong with this world? What should we done to fix this world? And and there's another one I'd add in there. Where am I going after this world? What happens to me afterwards? I should have put a sixth one in there. Now, I've got a whole bunch of notes, and I don't have nearly the time to get through all of this. I'll probably bring some of it out tonight at six. But I want to just pause on Lot for a second. We'll talk about worldview and what it is, and then how do we implement this? When you look at worldview, and I'm leaning on uh, uh, heavily in this portion of the message, I'll lean on for my quotes and so forth, uh, John Yates's material from Faith Bible Institute. And if you've not been involved in Faith Bible Institute, please do look at that. Get involved with it. It's very helpful. Worldview is perspective. As such, one sees what one sees is largely based upon where he's standing and how clearly he can see. 
Everyone has the same data to consider, but one's starting point or frame of reference greatly affects what's being seen. Adolf Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, he wrote, through clever and constant application of propaganda, people can be made to see paradise as hell. And also the other way around, to consider the most wretched sort of life as paradise. What good fortune to those in power that people do not think. It was written by Adolf Hitler. It could have been written today by many of our government officials. I think uh, there's similar thinking very prevalent today. But we've got to start thinking. We've got to start thinking biblically. Well, what do you see? I'm going to put a, a few letters on the screen that all run together. You tell me what you see. You look at that. And a lot of people will say, God is nowhere. Or you could say, God is now here. Right? It's the same exact letters. They're all squished together. You can go either way. It's a 50-50. I would love to say, I like to see that and say, God is now here. As opposed to God is nowhere. But folks, we're all looking at the same evidence. But we make different presuppositions based on our perspective and if we're going to avoid repeating the story of Lot in our own lives, we want to know, uh, we, need to, we need to know uh, where he went wrong and how we can shore this up. So any worldview has imperatives. There's some imperatives of worldview, some implications of a worldview, and an implementation of a worldview, and I'll try to move through this quickly. We'll start with the imperatives. A any worldview has to provide a reasonable uh, explanation for life. As I mentioned, where did I come from? Uh, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's wrong with the world? Uh, how do we fix it? There are different worldviews you've probably heard of. There's theism, deism, naturalism, or materialism, pantheism. Or what are all these isms? Uh, theism is that God created and governs nature, but is not equivalent to it. God exists outside of nature, but can and has freely acted within it by miracle and revelation. Nature is dependent upon God for its continued existence, and humans are subject to God's moral will. This would be Judaism, Christianity, Islam. They're all um, monotheistic, but not all believe in Christ as the way. So theism is not enough. You still need Jesus. All right? Then there's deism. Deism is God created nature, then leaves it to run its own. Okay? There's supernatural, but it never interferes with natural. And humans are left on their own in the natural. God creates and retreats. That's deism. You got naturalism or materialism. And this is the natural, material world is all that exists. Nothing exists outside the natural order. Nature exists and governs itself independent of anything. Uh, all reality is nothing more than matter in motion. This would be uh, humanism, secularism, atheism, postmodernism. And you've got pantheism. I'm sorry if I'm losing you here. We'll move through this quickly. But pantheism, God and nature are one. God is all things to, and all things are God or a part of God. That's the idea there. There's no distinction between deity and nature. Uh, God or goddess is a word that refers to some kind of non-personal force or energy. Now here's what happens here. Christians who are not rooted in the Bible will pick up Bits and pieces of this terminology. Bits and pieces of this ideology. And I hear this, and, and it, is, it is troubling. And they don't know they're doing it, but you go to school and you pick things up. You listen to the news and you pick things up. 
and we begin to borrow from other ideologies. Uh, these, the, the, the Bible uh, does not need, the Bible worldview does not need to borrow from any other worldview. It's, it's sufficient on its own. And any worldview that does borrow from another worldview is showing that it's insufficient. So a worldview uh, must provide a reasonable explanation for life. There's different worldviews. But a worldview also must be consistent and coherent. All right? It must be consistent and coherent. Consistent meaning without contradictions. Uh, if you have a worldview that says that there are no absolutes, which there are worldviews of this, okay, no absolutes, the atheists say that, or secularists or humanists say that. Well, you just made an absolute statement, right? right? So how do you do that? Uh, it's either raining outside or it's not raining outside. Uh, you've got worldviews that are inconsistent with themselves, and, and their, their narrative breaks down. A, 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 a good, consistent worldview is a narrative. It's got a big picture, a story that is well-written, and it's going someplace. The biblical narrative, as Ken Ham likes to say it, is creation, corruption, covenant, consummation, Christ. And the whole thing is just all tied together. It's coherent. Consistent and coherent. A working worldview does not borrow for, from other worldviews. This is what Lot did. Lot got himself all messed up because he starts borrowing from other things. You, you no, know, your worldview isn't insufficient. Don't get tied into all this other stuff. Uh, so you've got people who will say that we should treat people nice. But their worldview says survival of the fittest. Guess what? Your worldview is broken. You're, in that case, you're borrowing from the Christian worldview because treat people nice is something that you want because God put that in you. But if you're going to be pure in your worldview and you believe in survival of the fittest, there's no treat people nice. In fact, Frederick Nietzsche, he was honest enough to write this. What is strong wins? That is the universal law. To speak of right or wrong, per se, makes no sense at all. He's being honest. In his worldview, there's no right and wrong. Makes no sense. No act, catch this, this is, this is him. No act of violence, rape, exploitation, destruction is intrinsically unjust. Since life itself is violent, rapacious, exploitative, and destructive, and cannot be conceived of otherwise, there's a man who's being honest in his worldview. Survival of the fittest. Life is rough. Life is tough. Welcome to life. A lot of people say, oh, we don't like that. We don't like that. So what do we do? We have to borrow from other worldviews, like the Christian worldview. Treat people nice. Social justice, equality, and tolerance have all been borrowed from the Christian worldview. A serious lack of coherence means that a worldview is questionable at best. Sir Arthur Keith wrote this. Evolution is unproved and unprovable. However, we believe it only because the alternative is creation, and that is unthinkable. This is, this is honesty. I appreciate honesty. Even if I disagree with it, I appreciate it. This other guy, Dr. D.M.S. Watson, if you're really smart, you put your initials, not your name. So, one day I'll be Dr. J.M. Barber, but not yet. So Dr. D.M.S. Watson from the University of London writes, evolution itself is accepted by zoologists not because it can be proved by logically coherent evidence, but because 
The only alternative, special creation, is incredible. And so C.S. Lewis answers these gentlemen and says, Has it come to this? Does the whole vast structure of modern naturalism depend not only on positive evidence, but simply prejudice? Was it devised not to get in facts, but to keep out God? I think he's right. A working worldview does not contradict itself. Either human life is meaningless or we protect humans at all costs. And you'll see this. The ones who have a worldview of anti-God worldview, they'll say it's all about protecting humans and then you see them be uh, all of a sudden unprotecting of humans in certain times when it's convenient. A working worldview also makes sense of emotions. I'm going to move through that so much we could say. But the bottom line is this. If you begin to borrow from another worldview, you've undermined your own. And I think that's where Lot found himself to be. He's raising his kids with no moorings. All they know is Lot is somehow tied to this guy Abraham that they've never met. Or it was a long time ago. Isn't that the guy who had a fight with our herdmen and you guys split? Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, and we're supposed to believe like him for what? Well, why? There was just nothing there, and, and they're picking up all kinds of different things, and their palette of contradictory views within their worldview uh, uh, was, uh, was, was, was not helping them to be able to stand on solid ground. Let's look at, secondly, the implications of your worldview. Each, each worldview has certain implications, and, and how, you, uh, how you believe affects, first of all, how you see the world how you see sin and suffering, how you see life and death, how you see purpose and mission. It affects how you see problems and the solutions to those problems. Mostly, it instructs how you see morality. Your worldview, one of the biggest implications of your worldview will be how you see morality. J. Budzizewski, I don't know if I said that right, but I gave it a shot. He wrote, I had committed certain sins that I didn't want to repent of. Because the presence of God made me more and more uncomfortable, I began looking for reasons to believe that he didn't exist. It's a funny thing about us human beings. Not many of us doubt God's existence and then start sinning. Most of us sin and then start doubting his existence. That's profound. And I believe it's true. God created us. We're created in the image of God. Romans 1, where we started this whole thing, was Romans 1. Uh, he, he tells us that he put in us a conscience and a knowledge. There is a deeper knowledge that we have, that we have to suppress. The knowledge of creation points to God as creator. Uh, just the knowledge of our own bodies and how it's constructed, the order of it all, points to a creator. But... We want our own way. I thought it's so, so honest of him to say most of us sin and then start doubting his existence. His existence. This is how I have, uh, I have often counseled uh, when I have had some kid come to me and he was raised in a Christian home, raised in the Bible, got saved when he was six or whatever, and now his parents come to me and say, our son is not saved. In fact, he says he's an atheist. This has happened multiple times in my ministry. I remember one time I was preaching a message and this kid was sitting right there in the front row and his parents had told me ahead of time, he's not saved. 
we're praying for him to get saved at the end of this message. Well, after the message was over, he didn't, ha- he didn't respond. I went straight to him, took him outside to talk, and I found out very quickly, I was like, this kid is saved. This kid is totally saved. But I asked him a couple of questions. He had gotten into some, some specific sins, and it had just muted, quenched the Holy Spirit, quenched the fire, and when the Lord led me to put that finger on that sin, he hung his head. He said, yeah, while I'm doing this sin, everything, everything I've ever believed, I begin to question. You know what he did? He didn't get saved that day. He repented of that specific sin, got right with his mom and dad, got right with his pastor, and then immediately he had the joy of the Lord. And people were saying, did you get saved? Did you get saved? No, I've been saved. I just got right with the Lord. I was sinning. And because of that, I had doubt and unbelief and despair. Folks, that's how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to work like that, where you, 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 uh, things don't make sense in the Christian life. When we've got a worldview that says one thing, and we're borrowing these other bits and pieces, it's confusing, and it causes faith to collapse. Another quote here from a guy named Aldous Huxley. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should, do, should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, The philosophies of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Again, I would say, thank you, sir, for your honesty. Many people are in the exact same spot. They just aren't that honest. I don't know if God really exists, preacher. I used to believe it. I used to worry, but I don't know. I got all these doubts about God. I, whenever that happens, I never start saying, well, let's talk about creation and, and evolution. Let's talk about all these uh, 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 arguments for God. I don't do that. I start asking them about their sin. What are you looking at? What are you doing? Who are you with? Who are you running with? What's going on? And more oftentimes than not, That's the issue. The light goes out on God because the darkness has begun to settle in. John 3, 19 says, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved or exposed. Folks, have you ever looked around this crazy world and thought to yourself, how could any person with their eyes open write what that guy just wrote? How could any person believe what that girl just said? Well, that's just the point. Their eyes aren't open. Their eyes are closed. They're in complete darkness. They're in complete blindness. They can't see. And any Christian who follows after that Those lies and that deception will also enter into that darkness. So let's look thirdly at the implementation and be done. The implementation of our worldview. A biblical worldview is nurtured through decisions of faith. 
It's, it's, it's nurtured through decisions of faith. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the pl- proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. You'll be blessed when you just make him your trust. Psalm 71.1, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Never, let me never be put to confusion. The confusion happens when we, we wane in our faith in him. God is not the author of confusion, but the devil is. As you're leaning into God, there's clarity. As you are doubting him, there is confusion. Psalm 118.8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. I don't care who writes it. I don't care who says it. I don't care how many degrees they have. I know that anyone can be deceived, and people make science say whatever they want it to say, and they make uh, and the media will say whatever they're told to say. And, uh, you know, if, if you want to, something, you, you can hire a corrupt scientist to write a thing that says, this is healthy, everybody go buy it and eat it. And 10 years later, pay him enough money, they'll write a, a dissertation, this is not healthy, stop buying it, eat this guy's thing, he pays more. Uh, you, you can't trust men You can't trust princes and governments. You can trust God. You can trust his word. He created you. There's clarity there. There's light. God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. Proverbs 25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. There is so much fear of man when it comes to worldview. I don't want to be the square. I don't want to be irrelevant. I don't want to be seen as dumb or extreme. Are you extreme right-winger? Whatever they call us, let them call us whatever's the going thing. We're Bible-believing Christians who put our trust in the Lord. John 12, 35, Jesus said, yet a little while, Light is with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not, knoweth not whither he goeth. And that is so many individuals today, saved and lost, who, who, who find their way into darkness and lose their way, lose their moorings. I want to tell you, worldview comes down to faith regardless of which worldview you take. The people who take the, the atheist worldview are still believing it by faith. You can't get away from faith in this world. There's too much we don't understand. But here's where Lot went wrong. Lot had a relationship with Abraham that worked for him, but he didn't have a deep enough relationship with the God of Abraham to be able to translate that and transfer that to his loved ones. I think that's where a lot of families are. That's where a lot of kids walk out because dad knew God Mom knew God, but they couldn't introduce Junior to God. With every step of faith you take as a Christian, the next step becomes clearer because you're walking in the light. Depending on God, the God who knows all, the God who created all, is the only way to have peace in a world that's absolutely out of my control. We can't have clarity. We can't have peace. We can't have hope unless we're depending on the one who's in control of it all. By faith. Faith decisions reinforce a biblical worldview. Doubtful decisions undermine a biblical worldview. 
And you see that with Lot. One doubtful decision after the next. We'll get to that in just a second. Someone says, well, should I just obey God with blind faith? I don't want to be blind in my faith. There's a sense in which all faith is blind. Because if you could, if you could see everything, it wouldn't really be faith. But what did Abraham do? By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. I respect Abraham. I don't think he was stupid to go out not knowing where he's going. Abraham, where are you going? I don't know. Oh, idiot. No, 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 no. Here's the answer. Abraham, where are you going? I don't know, but God does. I'm following him. That's all you need. I'm following the God who hung the planets in space. I'm following the God who put me on this earth, who put this earth here. I'm following the one who knows what is supposed to happen in my life. Oh, biblical worldview is nurtured through decisions of faith, and as I've already alluded to, a secular worldview is nurtured through the numbing effect of sin. Or I could have said it this way, a biblical worldview is undermined or eroded through the numbing effects of sin, however you want to see it. The progression that Lot went down. First of all, he lifted up his eyes toward the lush land of Sodom. And why wouldn't he say, wow, that land looks so good. I want Abraham to have that. Why not? No, he says, I want to have that. So first it starts with selfishness. Then Lot, in 1311, chose the land that was most favorable. Then in 1312, he pitches his tent toward Sodom. He is directing his gaze that direction. Boy, they've got it together over there. They've got technology. They've got opportunity. They've got future. They've got education. My kids can learn. My kids will have a future. We're no longer nomads. Strangers and pilgrims going about without a place to call our own. I think we've got a future in a city that is so wicked, God would destroy it. He then moved his family to Sodom. 19, 1 and 2 tells us this. They get a house in Sodom. No more tents. He becomes active in the gate of the city. He may have been a city official. Some, some commentators believe he was a city official by this point. And he is involved in the business of the city. And what's the product of all of this? As I mentioned, he offers to give his daughters into the hands of evil men to be raped. Why? Because it fit the worldview that he was starting to buy into. The culture accepted this. The culture not just accepted it, but expected this. You'll preserve these two strangers if you, and, and, if necessary, sacrifice your, your daughters. But daughters are not important. The men are important. That's wicked. The Bible says if you don't provide for your house, protection is part of that. You're worse than an infidel. He's selling out to the, to the, to the, the ideology of the land. And then, of course, as I already mentioned, he's, he's not taken seriously by his own family, but he seems like one who mocked. Why? When you are articulating one thing and living another, it is laughable. You can't take it seriously. And I know, folks, that none of us are perfect. And all of us 
do not perfectly live what we believe. But humility comes in, confession comes in, repentance comes in, honesty comes in, and that reinforces the situation. I don't want some dad here to be discouraged by, oh yeah, pastor said, if, if I'm a hypocrite, I, I'm just going to lose my kids, I might as well not even try. No, 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 no. If you are a hypocrite, and we all are, you know, every single sinner is a hypocrite in some way, shape, or form, that's what sin is. It makes you do things that you don't believe in, all right? So if you are a hypocrite, if you're a sinner, uh, you don't have to lose the ship if you'll humble yourself, swallow the pride, look your children in the face and say, here's how I sinned against you. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Don't do this that dad did. That was a mistake. Here's what dad is doing now. You pray for dad. You pray for mom. Hey, he could have done this and been taken seriously by his own family, but instead he seemed as one that mocked. There was no humility. He would say one thing and do another. No conviction. He was not able to deliver his family. As I mentioned before, the angels had to grab them by the hands and take them out. And he was helplessly left upon the mercy of the angels to deliver him. Uh, And really, it is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of salvation. Lot did not deliver himself. He tried. And that's a good illustration of us who try to get ourselves saved. We try to deliver ourselves. You try to do a good work, save this person, help this person, do all these things, but ultimately you can't do it. And Jesus has to do it. He was delivered. He did not deliver himself. He lost his married children and their son, the sons-in-law. He lost his wife. He was seduced by his own daughters. He, he, he drank, he got drunk and did things that presumably he wouldn't have done sober. And then he produces these children of Ammon and Moab, the lifelong enemies of Israel. As I said at the beginning of this message, all my kids and my grandkids and great, 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 great grandkids, if the Lord tarries, to love the Lord, to know the Lord, and to be with him forever. But I certainly don't want them to miss out on that, and I certainly don't want them to become the enemies of the Lord, the sworn enemies. We've got to pray. We've got to be earnest. We've got to be humble. Sin in the life of a believer erodes the Christian worldview. Acts of sin are acts of unbelief. Acts of sin are acts of uh, numbing. The more of this we do, the more unbelief takes hold in our life. And the more unbelief takes hold in our life, the more darkness grows and light fades. Sin dulls the conscience and it darkens the soul. And next thing you know, you're listening to things from the secular worldviews and they start to make sense. They say, yeah, what that, that atheist teacher at college is saying makes some sense. Why does it make sense? Here's why it makes sense. Because he's in darkness, and so are you. This is why we've got to make sure we're walking in the light. And we can see clearly. Otherwise, we're stumbling about. You know, 1 Corinthians talks about the carnal man. What's a carnal man? He's a, he's a man who is walking according to the flesh. In, in 1 Corinthians, you have the spiritual man mentioned, the carnal man, and the natural man. The natural man is not saved. The spiritual man has been saved and is walking in the spirit. The carnal man is saved and walking according to the flesh. And to the 
naked eye, the carnal man and the natural man can look very much the same. Many things that used to be revolting to the believer are now starting to make sense when the understanding becomes darkened. And Lot lost his moorings, and then he lost everything. Very quickly, 1 Timothy 1.5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Conscience and unfeigned faith go together. Don't fake your faith. Don't undermine your faith. You'll lose your conscience and you'll lose everything that goes with it. 119, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. That would be Lot. Lot shipwrecked his family and his future because he did not hold that, that, that good conscience along with his faith. 3.9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. 4.1, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving, of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. He's saying at the end, in, in the last days, people will, will, will see that which has stood as the faith worldview, and they'll begin to reject it, depart from it, and, and, and start going after all kinds of other doctrines and other seductions. Forbidding to marry, have you heard of that one? That's alive and well today. And it's even seen as a, a potentially uh, a spiritual thing to do or a, a uh, religious thing to do. Commanding to abstain from meats. That's a big one today. I talked about that last time. Don't eat meat. You're eating basically a, a, a human. As I, as I mentioned, that, that billboard, see the individual, and there's a picture of a pig. Don't eat pork. There's an individual there. I, I about drove off the road looking. I can't believe I'm seeing this. Well, the Bible told us this would happen. It's because we're not able to see things clearly, and a lot of Christians get pulled right in. Folks, we need to nurture a walk of faith through God's Word, and it's got to be real. Someone might say, well, did Lot do wrong to go to Sodom? Don't, doesn't Sodom need God? Doesn't Sodom need deliverance and repentance? And is it wrong for, Sodom to, for, for Lot to go there and set up shop to preach? That would have been great if that's what he went there to do, but that's not what he went there to do. The motive from the beginning was, this looks good. I'm liking this. You know, God has sent some people to places like Sodom to win out of people for his name. But if you're going to be that person, you can't be Lot. You've got to be Abraham. Abraham knew who he was following, and he knew what he believed. For Lot, it was a generation further removed, and just not enough got real in his soul. God help us to nurture a walk of faith and resist, reject that erosion of sin as we seek 
to have Christ preeminent in our worldview? Is Jesus Christ preeminent in your worldview? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for faithfulness of your spirit to convict and guide and bless. Lord, none of us can claim to be anything special. None of us can claim to be better than Lot. I think many of us probably relate to him in a lot of ways. Help us to be humble. Help us, Lord, to allow you to get all of us focused on living our lives for you, on lifting up Jesus, and being able to transmit that to the next generations. I pray, God, that you would work now as we take a time to, to just uh, look to you and, and, and uh, confess sin and draw near to you. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. As the piano plays, why don't you take a moment just to talk to the Lord. this way. If there's a need in your heart, I'd like to talk to you about that. If you're not sure you're saved, that's where this all starts. Can't have the right worldview without having Jesus in your life. I'd love to talk to you about how to know for sure you're saved on your way to heaven. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about some of the specific things we have to navigate as Christians within our worldview. And try to get some biblical help for that, Lord willing. But tonight at six, we'll be back here, God willing and meet in our various life group locations and uh, talk through some of the application of this morning's message. So chew on it this afternoon and uh, let God continue to use it. Pastor CJ, would you come close us, please? Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that teaches us the way. Father, this world is complicated and it is difficult to navigate sometimes, but thank you for the truth that guides us. I pray that it would shape our worldview. I pray that we would be steeped in your word and open to the Spirit's influence. Lord, help us to influence the next generation as we stand fast on your word, on the truth, and in our faith. Bless us now. Bring us back safely tonight. We ask your blessing, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to see you today. God bless you. You're dismissed.